We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities. And this week we have a very special bonus episode. We are diving into the memoir of Cecily Strong. She is a star on SNL, a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race, the star of Apple TV's latest show, Schmigadoon, which I cannot wait to see. And this memoir was published uh, seconds ago, minutes ago. It literally came out yesterday. Um, And Cecily wrote it in the last year and we're gonna dive into it all right now with Cecily herself. Hi, Cecily. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you for including RuPaul in my bio. Are you kidding me? It's like, (laughs) that's probably the moment in your life when you heard from me most. I was like, what are you wearing? (laughs) What's your hair? Like, (laughs) That is truly, there are some people who only know me that way and I appreciate them even more so for it. Fuck, I love Drag Race. Okay. All right. But diving in (laughs) to something I love just as much is your book. So I read your book couple weeks ago, it wrecked me. Uh, I highlighted so many things, but before we get into it, I introduce all my guests with the story of how we first met. Do you remember how we first met? And if not, I might. I have an idea. I feel like I don't know what the actual like first meeting was because I certainly like knew who you were, but I don't know if we had met yeah, yeah. We definitely I never like had a, like, shake hands moment. Right. Well, I think we're—I'm awkward. I am i don't know if you feel that way as well. I don't know that I had a lot of shake hands moment. So. <laughs> At all. <laughs> in Chicago. I remember you because I was in awe of you, and you were understudying the main stage. Yeah, you were touring, like, on the road for Second City, and— 
The moment I remember us most like being like, okay, this was the moment we've officially met is when you were leaving the touring company and I was coming in. And I, you handed me your scripts of all your roles. And I just remember my stomach sinking because I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I have to do these. <laughs> and I can't fill these shoes. And, that, and I also remember watching you do your SNL audition and being like, holy shit. Those are my like two big moments of like when, I, when we met. And now I, and I feel like I remember us both learning uh, Katie's role because we were both understudying that part. And it was sort of like the, the girls of a certain type were all. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because Katie was on this podcast and she was like, you and I are a very similar type. And here's the type we came up with. Tell me if you think this is it. You gotta be tall. You gotta be brunette. You gotta be loud. Mm-hmm. And you love pills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you take up space. You take up space. Um, aggressive. These are the things we had in common. A loud laugh. A loud laugh. Great loud dogs. Laugh. I would also say now, great dogs. You're right. Katie also said dogs. Obsessed with our dogs. And now, your dog looks like mine. I Because no. you know I've, you know, scoped your dog. Oh. <laughs> Peeped your dog on, on Instagram. <laughs> I definitely put a side-by-side <laughs> of Lucy and Atticus, and I was like, In, is there a world where maybe— um, But I, Lucy's very small, right? She's 25 pounds. Okay. At, so now Atticus, he, we've been told he's obese. He is 32 pounds. <laughs> Dr. Yoshida is always on me to have Lucy lose weight. Wow, maybe our dogs really are related. Yeah. I can't— I Well, can't. they're related. To, she's related to me. We're all on a diet, so. Oh, God. Listen, I cannot get this dog to to stop eating my fries because I'm eating fries. <laughs> <laughs> so he's never going to lose weight. Um, okay, so your memoir is not a typical memoir. It's written like diary style, and it's very in the moment, but it's still covering a lot of things in your life. It was really gripping, and it's about the loss of your cousin and grieving that through the pandemic and processing it. And- I want to give listeners a chance to read it and enjoy your book. So we're not going to recap it, but I'm going to read some quotes and talk about it. And also we joked over email of that. Maybe this podcast will just be two comedy gals talking about depression and sadness. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that'll be. (laughs) Like my normal Friday nights. A normal Friday night. Um, Okay. So I want to start by reading a small part. I love this book because it starts with a love interest and you're like a rom-com memoir, but, and you're really <laughs> along for the ride and you've met this guy named Jack and, and, um, and you're picking at the skin behind your nail from, from anxiety. And he says, quote, I want you to feel like you can hold my hand instead. I don't tell him, but it's one of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me because he pulled your hand away. And I was like, oh no, they have to make it. They have to make it in the memoir. Um, Okay, so um, was it, did you always know Jack was going to be in the book? I I didn't. And, you know, to be honest, it was like, he was sort of just, I wasn't sure he was going to be in my life, kind of, you know, I was, I've been, I was single for so long and or like had little flings here or there, but nothing very serious. And so I assumed he would kind of be like that, especially after losing my cousin. But I think, so I lost my cousin in January, 2020. And then in March, it was like, 
that week in New York, it was crazy because it was a very fast-moving, confusing week. And we had SNL on Saturday. And then Sunday, Jack and I went to see the U.S. women's national team play uh, in New Jersey for um, the She Believes Cup on International Women's Day. And then um, that night we were like, I like you. Let's do you want to be dating? And like having that conversation that I haven't had. And then I like introduced him to my friends at Ego's birthday on Tuesday. And Thursday, he's called me and he said, I have a fever. And I knew he had COVID. And I didn't see him again for three months. Wow. Okay. So I actually, because in the book, you're like, now we're apart from each other, but I didn't know it was three months. Yeah. I mean, he was sick for a long time. And even though I knew he had COVID, Um, but he couldn't even get a test. We actually got him a test, but he sort of, the, the, the doctor at the emergency room where he was going to go turn it in to get sent out, made him throw it out because he was not old enough. And it was like, we just couldn't get tests in New York. And it was very frustrating. And I remember trying to tell people that weren't in New York, like he's got COVID and they kept saying, well, how do you know? And it was my... I'd also just met my cousin's oncologist from Duke, um, Dr. Henry Friedman, like the day before. And and then the next day I had to say, can, what, can you help us with COVID? And he was wow. calling and checking in on Jack every morning and every night. And he's the one that told me I had to quarantine because nobody else would have told. I mean, I could have walked around. And then I had to call every. So it's like I finally introduced someone to my friends. And then I have to text them and say, by the way, he's got COVID. Oh, no. Are you feeling, how are you feeling? And do you still like my new boyfriend? Right. <laughs> I finally meet, have you meet someone and like, did they, did he that, hurt you? That is nuts. And also now because we're so inundated with COVID, it is, the book takes you back to a moment where we didn't know what it was or that they right. didn't have testing kits available or, I mean, it really was like two days into maybe when, I count the pandemic starting when Tom Hanks got COVID. When I don't know when you <laughs> think that. I started, it. it was like that week. I remember I was supposed to do a, a, a fundraiser that the next Monday or something for 24-hour Broadway. And by Wednesday or Thursday, I was like, I'm not doing it. And they kept saying, no, it'll be fine. We're doing, we're cleaning. We're doing the, sanit- the sanitizing the way they were supposed to. And by Friday or Saturday, Broadway was shut down. That is wild. And yes, you're, you talking about what was happening, even though it was just a year and a half ago, it feels like it was 10 years ago. It takes <laughs> you back. Okay, so that was my other favorite part of the book. And for anyone who's like going, trying to date in pandemic, like this is the book for you because you go through all these like weird things that would only happen in a relationship per pandemic, like being separated for three months. And then like the pressure cooker of my anxiety going crazy and being so scared, like, is he going to die? I, I, like scouring newspapers to find out like, what does COVID do? How does it affect you? Do I have COVID? And then, you know, and then it was sort of, it was too much. It was a lot, which is why I think we also like struggled a lot. And he kind of yeah pushed me away a bit. And then we ended up, luckily, he's still in my story, but it was really a, a lot of pressure on an early thing that was fun two days ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> also, like, I, yeah, I also have a lot of anxiety. And when your anxiety is at your worst, like, not something you want someone you're dating to see. I don't know. I like to hide it for as long as possible. So right. it's like a really fun surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to, like, start dating and then you're, like, worried they're going to die and then they have to witness that level of anxiety in you. Like, right. Yeah, I imagine that was. And then you're like, I promise this is not what I am like every single day. Unless, you know, unless the pandemic stays, in which case, yes, this is what you're buying right. into. Yeah. Um, no, I loved I loved the like ups and downs. And then when he came back, I felt I found myself being like, oh my God, Jack's back. So <laughs> then, but then you're still new in the relationship now. So did you, were you like, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm going to put you in the book. Did he read it? Like, what did you guys talk about it? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I was really just writing, not knowing it would be a book for a long time. And I would oh, send wow. him things. And then especially once we knew once I had a feeling I was going to have it, even just the vulture essay is when, you know, Jack is a nickname and it was so that it would, there would be a little bit of space for the essay. And then it kind of, it, it stayed and it kind of, I liked it and it gave me, I felt a little better writing about it, but he, you know, I went over everything with him and made sure he was okay with yeah. what I was saying. Oh, no, I there. love, okay. I love that it's a nickname. Was there, were you just like, was there a bottle of Jack Daniels? And you're like, his name's Jack. Like, how did you find, was it Jack and Jill? No, it was sort of, we kind of came up with it together. Like, well, I'm not going to call you your name. So what do we both like? And we kind of settled on that. I, I like the name Jack. It's also my nephew's name, but then, then every time we're around my nephew, I'm like, I hope that's not weird for you guys. <laughs> I also, I wish you would have named him like Rigatoni. And then he's like, I'll the would have been like, what? What? Um, no, that's really cool. I really loved it. And I'm going to read some other quotes from it later. Okay, so then another part in your book, that <laughs> it's a very small detail, but it really meant a lot to me. You talked about how you were a Z-Quill girl and pandemic transitioned you to an Ambien girl. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Take me through what were you doing to sleep before the pandemic and all your stages till now? Because this, this really spoke to me. Um, well, I mean, SNL has just ruined, I already, I was never a great sleeper. And then SNL weird hours and like, I'm going to be on live TV. Am I going to get this thing right in two hours? I don't get to rehearse it till Saturday. So it's very hard to sleep anyway. But I was like, I take z I have these herbal pills um, if I'm having bad anxiety, I'll take Xanax, but I like to save my Xanax for my anxiety attacks. Yes. <laughs> um, not use it for sleep. And then it was finally, I talked to my doctor and it was kind of like, just give me, I need to sleep at some point. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to take it. I am feeling so anxious. I don't want to take anxiety every night. So, you know, give me something else. And I wasn't, I, I, I'm like, I grew up, my mom's a nurse practitioner. We're fine with medicine and my family, but I yeah. still was like, I don't want to be on too many prescription pills, but it was the ambient. It really helped. I, and it still does. Yeah. I, I always was a bad, I'm a bad sleeper too, but, um, pandemic happened and I was like, I'll just hit the z more often. But then I had to start doing, this is whatever we're saying, don't do it home. It's not healthy. Right. Talk um, to your doctor, I, please. Talk to your doctor. I was taking z at like 4 p.m. because my anxiety would push through it until it could finally drag me down at like uh-huh. midnight. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, this can't, this can't be good. And then I just had to like increase and go from there. And then you're like having anxiety about how much 
anxiety you're having and then about your remedies, you're having an anxious <laughs> remedy. Like, well, if I take this herbal spray with my Zequil, will that interact? And then, you know, and then you're up for hours. So. Right. No, yeah, I always like sneak off right after dinner so that I can feel like everyone else around me at the normal times that they get tired. <laughs> after eating their meal. Yeah, it's like, I think they'll get tired in two hours. I'll so pretend I will too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really myself. um I really related to that. Although I will say truly the day after the election, um I I need I stopped needing to take it as much. It's <laughs> like the, now, there's the which, real sleep pill. <laughs> which day? Because it um, was great point. Um no, uh, I would say the day after where I was like, oh shit, he really did win. And then when it was in contention, it was like back on the Zequil, back on the pills. Right. And then when it was like Nope, he's really, this is really, it really is going to be Biden. <laughs> I suddenly could could sleep a little more. And I felt like, because then I was like, something will be done about COVID. Now I can yes. go to sleep. Yes, absolutely. And I thought it was so nice that he honored it. You know, it was like, are we going to talk about, it was just like, everything felt like it was such shock. And there was no, yeah. no acknowledging this huge loss yet and the sadness Oh, and yeah. I thought that memorial was so touching. It, that's why I was like, okay, we, th- having Biden and Kamala doing that memorial at the Washington Monument was like, oh, finally, it's a nation we can like start to start to grieve and start to process this. Yeah. What's interesting too is that even even with looking at the specific administrations and like wh- whatever actions they took no matter what you kind of at the end of the day you want mom and dad to appear calm and collected yes <laughs> and like they know what they're doing regardless if they do and that was a, a thing where like before i even knew what action he was going to take it's like well at least you're going to look calm and collected you're not screaming you're you're not smelling things incorrectly on twitter instead of focusing on this <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. and it was that that's what brought me a lot of relief too before we even knew the plan i was like mom and dad seem to be they seem to be fine. Yes. And I think I wrote about it in the book, too, but there was something about, I feel like Biden, so much of his life and his character is carrying grief with him because of mm. losing his, well, like first his wife and daughter and then, but his son, Bo, yeah. who also died of glioblastoma. And it felt like he carries that on his sleeve. And I felt like, weirdly, we are in need of someone who is compassionate and has also been through a lot to sort of acknowledge that this country has just been through a lot. Not only just COVID, but everything that we've just been through. That is such a good point. And and yeah, the fact that his son died from the exact same thing that your cousin passed away from and how much that hit you in the book with also a sentence you wrote, like, I hope Biden wins. And I was back with you in the election moment of like when we didn't know. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like there was a moment when we didn't know um, and how you wrote about it was really startling. Because also your dad's in, it was in politics. Well, he's in public relations, but he wound up knowing a lot, running in those circles in Chicago. I felt comfort in your writing because you, you, I mean, you spoke at the correspondence dinner and like, it's like, I could feel comfort through your writing about this too. And, <laughs> and again, like about knowing someone who had had grief needed to be, 
in the state we're in right now. (laughs) Yes. Like, no matter what, I was like, you know, whatever. I don't feel like it's a very political stance, but I felt like this is somebody who genuinely cares about people. And it's sort of, he kind of, he'll be late to something because someone will run up and he's like, hugs them or something, you know, like a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. It's like small, small details. Um, Okay. So I want to read another page. It's June 2012. I have just somehow been flown to New York to screen test for SNL after doing a showcase in Chicago. It feels so crazy and unreal that I don't tell many people. I assume I won't get this job. I don't even dare to dream about. So I try and take the audition as a win. I'm staying at a tiny hotel by 30 Rock. I'm terrified. I do my short audition at what I recognize as the stage where I've seen countless heroes hug each other at the SNL goodnights. I always thought they must genuinely be so happy to live that life and end their week by hugging their friends before they all go to a fabulous fun party. So (laughs) I loved that moment because, again, I remember seeing you do that audition and how incredible it was and how— it's so wild reading that. And you are there now. So my question for you is, what is the hug like for you now? Like having watched it on TV and you're like, they're so happy and they're going to go party. Like, what yeah. is it like being in the hug now? I know. I will. Well, obviously we haven't had a fabulous fun party in a while. And I was kind of like, oh, I mean, I wrote that because that is truly how I saw it as a kid. And then, you know, yeah, that's like, how we, that's how it seemed. You're crying and you're so tired. I mean, but I will say, for the most part, the hugs are very genuine and like, oh, we did it. We got through it. Or, you know, very celebratory. You finally got something on or something went well. But then probably like the after the hugs, I don't know that our, I don't know that we're all going to a fabulous, fun life after. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> I'm going to sit on the floor in my dressing room and just space out for an hour and a half until yeah. I can go home. Yeah. Until I can get it together, just <laughs> right, put, to it, get put my pants on and leave. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yes. Yeah, I I mean, having known you and some other people who work, I mean, it's just, it's one of the most stressful comedy jobs you can have because it's still live. I mean, like right. all, a lot of these jobs are stressful, but that one is extremely stressful. And I also remember watching the hug being like, wow, wow, wow. They're <laughs> hugging, they're on yachts, they take Ferraris to a party. Right. And then you meet people who work there and you're like, that's not what's happening. And people are always like, what did the, you must be friends with the the music guests. And I'm like, no, I literally, I met them right then. What you yeah, saw was yeah. me meeting someone. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Um, but it was really exciting um, reading about, like, your audition, your journey. So anyone who wants to read about that, great in the book. Okay, later in the same chapter, you are on a trip in Spain, and you break your leg. My foot, yeah. Oh, your foot. Sorry. You break your foot. And the funniest part to me is that you know that you can't get a cast because you're an actress <laughs> and you have to go to the hospitals and all you keep saying is like, soy actriz, soy actriz. Like, right. I'm an actress, so you can't fix my foot. But can you break that down where you were like, don't put me in a cast? Well, I remember, it, you know, it was early enough on an SNL too, where I was like, am I going to get fired because I broke my foot? I just felt, I was so defeated. I didn't even go to the clinic until the morning. I was like, I just want to go home and cry for the night, (laughs) lick my wounds, (laughs) and then I'll go to the clinic because like, will they fire me if I have a cast, if I'm not able to do the show? Um, And they wanted to give me a hard cast and not a boot. And it was like, I had done, I was so proud of my Duolingo uh, practice, but they don't, I did not learn how to say, I can't have a hard cast. 
because I will be on, <laughs> I have to move on television. I have to play characters and sketch comedy. So all I could say was, sorry, actress. No, no. Yeah. It's just like, it's, but their side of this story is like a woman came in having a broken foot that she didn't come in for for 24 hours and then just screamed, <laughs> I'm an actress. And then left. <laughs> I loved it yeah. so, so much. Um, and that's not the craziest thing I did in Spain, so. Yeah, I mean, there's all there's like a little love story. Um, I feel like there's photos on your Instagram that I connected this to in my head, and I was like, wow, wow, wow. Um, <laughs> um, so then, and this book is, what I also like about it is that it, you're kind of on this current timeline of, of all the things you've just gone through of pandemic happening, but then you're also bouncing around to other parts in your life and it's all woven together really beautifully. And there's an incredibly moving story about your brother. And I don't want, I want people to read the story so we don't have to go into it, but in it, Planned Parenthood comes up and this part about him leaving money to Planned Parenthood. And I feel like you've always done work with plan. Like when we were in Chicago, I feel like you were always doing work with Planned Parenthood. So has your family always been Planned Parenthood supporters? Because when it was your little brother too, I was like, that is so touchy. Well, he, he's my big your brother, older brother, but he, your older brother. But he was little. But I mean, he was 14. Yeah. I, and it's okay. I mean, I don't mind. I feel like it's so much of the book is like that's— I've already been talking about a lot of okay. it. Okay. Well, listen, when— it's sometimes it's hard to revisit shit even when you print it. Sure. Well, yes. I think I've talked to my brother a lot and he's very good about, um, he's, he's very sweet and it's like, it's your story. It's okay. And, you know, I'm not writing anything to exploit him. But, and a lot of it is like dealing with depression and uh, it's been in my family. And my brother had bad depression and ADD and Asperger's, which is especially tough when you're a kid. And it was like a 90s kid. So they just call you a bad child and put you in a special class because you're dyslexic and learning dis- blah, blah, blah. And he um, he attempted suicide when he was 14 and was put in the, he survived, obviously. And um, he swallowed a bottle of his Ritalin that he was prescribed for his ADHD. And uh, he spent a week in the Rush psych kids ward, but he'd like written a will and his will, he said he wanted to leave his money, which was like, you know, who knows how much, $5 or something to Planned Parenthood. And I don't really know I mean, that was that came from, but it was such a testament to like, that is my brother. I, what a wonderful, loving person. And again, it's like why I don't mind talking about my depression because I'm very proud of managing it and um, staying on top of it. And it's important to do so because... You know, my brother's still with us today, and I get to have my amazing, wonderful brother who wanted to leave money to Planned Parenthood because he manages his depression. And it's like, but it almost cost me my brother. Wow, Cecily, that is really beautiful. And thanks for talking about it. And yeah, I I was, I'm always like cautious of like what people can revisit, but the reframing of like, I'm proud of it because I know how to manage it is huge. Was that through therapy first, do you think that you got like your first management skills or like how did you first get oh, a hold of it? Absolutely. I mean, I w- I've been in therapy off and on some points more, you know, some some we- some years it's been twice a week, you know, yeah. during bad times. But uh, since I was, since high school, really, and it was like my, it was, and I, we had a family psychiatrist. So a family psychiatrist. 
Where, yes. like, they meet with the whole family or they meet individually? Well, she was, yeah, she met individually with us. But because my brother had already been going through things, and it, that also made it, like, it was okay to tell my mom. But when I first was dealing with, uh, when I told her, like, I'm I'm thinking I want to drive to California some nights or I want to go in the garage and sit and not wake up, you know, in the car. And I just, but it's like you're very robotic about it with depression. And so luckily, like she said, no, 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 no. We're going to to see our the family psychiatrist. <laughs> That's really, really cool. And cool that your mom listened. Oh, yeah. And like did something about it. And she yeah. was very much like early on, she really um, hammered it in that like this is not, this is not something to be ashamed of. It's like, you don't get ashamed when you have a cold or when you have some, you know, a chicken pox or something. So why be ashamed when it's in your head and not your body? It's still, you should think of it the same. The thing I really haven't heard enough about is that like, yeah, you have it, don't be ashamed and just man and manage it. And that's another important part of it, of just learn to manage it the way you would learn to manage all other diseases. And it takes a lot, you know, and it's like, that's why I'm especially proud, because especially when you're in it, it's hard to remember, number one, that this this will not last. You might feel, you might feel this is such dread today, but it won't last. And it's like, but you have to be proactive. Yes. And it's like, it has to be you. Somebody else can't do it for you. Which is the worst fucking part, you know, because even when you try and help someone else, like, it, you, you really can't. As much as you want to and you love them so much, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, I have a tattoos on my fingers and people think like, whoa, like cool finger tattoos. <laughs> and I actually don't know if I've ever talked about this, but I'm like, yep, a mental health reminder. And like, that's like how badly I needed to make sure I don't lose part of the reminder was like, well, it's just put it on my fucking face. finger forever. Yeah. Absolutely. So I have to see it. Now I look like a badass too. No. <laughs> well, you are a badass. That is oh my God, badass. Thanks. Anyway, but- I think that's more badass. But yeah, you you have to have like little tiny, it's like you have like, almost like you have to like booby trap your house in your mind yeah. to give you a little, like like the marbles come in to remind you like, oh no, I have to go and manage this now. Yes. Sometimes it's like, okay, you can have today to stay in bed, but tomorrow, you know, even I would say like in the first two weeks of that in New York, when I was quarantined, it was like, okay, you can fall apart now, but that, but you have to get this Airbnb. You have to get out of here because you, I don't know that I would have made it. Like, I mean, part of depression is people do kill themselves and it's not like an emotional thing. And it's not even a thing I say, it's not a nice thing to say or even not, but it is like, that's can happen. And it's, you know, when you're in that space. So it's like, get out of there, just get out of the house, go where you have space. And when you can take care of yourself, do the work that it, that you need. Right, right, right. Got it. And you're so right about like, it, it is not, it's not comfortable. It's not easy. It's not fun, especially for anyone who's ever been near it in any way, but like you have to talk about it or we're never as a society going to deal with it, but but all the individuals aren't going to deal with it. Do you find, um, in relation to being a comedian, um, do you find that it gets in your way a lot? Or do you feel like it's a part of your comedy and why you're a comedian? I think probably both. You know, I, I, I get, you know, I'm still very self-deprecating and I think that's fine. And, and I also think, 
I'm not sure if it is depression, but I always thought, you know, my brother has Asperger's and I know a lot of people in comedy that are, if their family's on the spectrum or they are, whether they know mm-hmm. it or not. And I always <laughs> thought like there was something similar, and it, but I have social anxieties too. And um, it's always like you have to, so much of your life is observing and for Asperger's, sometimes it's like that survival to observe. So I've also think like people that are great impressionists. I'm, some yeah. of them I've met, I've been like, you're on the spectrum. Because they had to look at those facial tics in order to sort of survive as a kid. Like, well, how are these people reacting to this social interchange that's happening? Yeah, that is so on point. And I will say um, this podcast only does women's memoir. Memoirs for many reasons, but often they are the ones that I find are the best. But a male memoir that is incredible is Daryl Hammond, who, through his intense trauma, takes you through how his brain learned to do impressions just to survive his mom, which is like similar to what you're saying, where it's like it was it's survival. Comedy is survival, which is ridiculous, but true. You you rarely meet people, I think, in comedy who are like. Wow, you're completely like squeaky clean mental health wise. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. I'm actually trying to think if I can think of one for comedy, but it's <laughs> I haven't met a lot. Yeah, no, I can't. I, I personally, I'm scrolling through my Rolodex of comedians, and no <laughs> one's even so far coming close. The ones that are yeah. coming close, I'm like, well, but their thing is hidden. You know what I mean? Yes. But like, it's not like, yeah, yeah. You can see the ones who work on it and who don't, though. That is very true. Um, yeah. Sometimes you can see it via social media. <laughs> no. <laughs> or on a billboard in LA. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, more interview with Cecily. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. 
But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Welcome back. Let's dive back in. Okay, so this brings me to one of my favorite lines in the book. Um, You have some really great chapters about boyfriends, and there's one boyfriend who you guys go through a breakup, and you said, he said he wanted someone more peaceful and less of a firecracker. And I was like, oh, God, like, like, oh, God, I just, I just felt it so much, especially as I will say, like, lady comedian, that feels like, like, and did he, was he really like, I just want someone calmer? like, it's not, he said, it's not your fault or something. I fell in love with a firecracker, which also like <sighs> took me out of the equation and anything that I could possibly, it's like, so it's just about you anyway. Yeah, it's about it, you and this firecracker. <laughs> you fell in love with a firecracker and I don't know, I'm just the firecracker. But it's like when God. you, and you let those things sit in you, you know, and I was yeah. like for a long time, like, oh, I must be too difficult. And it's so I just shouldn't even subject someone to me. I, yeah, I feel that so hard where it's like, <clears throat> and I've also been told like, you're a lot. Right. You're, you're a lot. And and I was never like, you're wrong. I was like, you're right. <laughs> like, right. I'm, I'm too much for me. Like, of course I'm too much for you. And like, but then also that's not true. That's not true. And, and I, I would, I would wonder if there's anyone you can meet who's not quote unquote a lot. And like, there's, it's like, they've, they've turned that narrative into a negative one, as opposed to like, you're a lot, you, you feel so much, you have so much going on. That makes you terribly exciting too. I'd love to work on things with you to make some things easier, but it's like when someone just labels you as too much and especially for women, I think, too, where it's like, you know, his years and years of being called histrionic and burned at the yes. stake for it or whatever. <laughs> yes. But it's like you you, you think you're supposed to be. I don't know. I think it's great to be a lot. I'm glad I am a lot, too. And I also think, and then I, you work on the parts that are difficult as opposed to just a lot. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because I, I yeah, also once I did get into therapy, I did stop hating my personality as much. You know, cuz it it is there there are there are moments that are a lot, but like that's for me. <laughs> that's for me and my therapist, but like me yes. as a whole is not too much. Right. Simply simply because I have opinions on how you treat me, okay? <laughs> yes, and it shouldn't all be lumped together because then I think it's like very confusing for you too to know like am I allowed to think this or feel this way? or is that part of the too difficult part of me? Yeah, totally. And it, it is a, also a, it's a really tough line because if you are, if you are, I don't know, like um, uh, acting in a way that impairs someone else, that is a real true thing. But also, let's say you're just like, where were you last night? They can be like, you're too much. Right. You're too much. Like, oh, you turn something into everything. And it's like, oh, you can't wield this tool. You right. know, this because is something that like, only needs to be said. It's real. Yeah, yeah, it's working. And I'll listen to you. So if you say it, I hope you really mean it because it you'll 
knock me down. I'll want to work on it. So make sure you mean it. Okay. I love that. I'm going to read. I I just have my notes in here and it says page 136 in all caps. It says stunning. So now I'm going to (laughs) go. I love that. (laughs) Those are good notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Oh, here it is. When I get feelings for someone, I lose control. I can't get rid of it or even quite access it in solo therapy. It's so physical. My brain is the most creative when it comes to how someone can hurt me. I black out, I cry, I have punched my fists into walls and forgotten the next day. And I'm left so embarrassed. This pain wasn't meant for you to see. It's mine. I scare people and I should, I think. Cause like kind of what, Yeah. I mean, but but I, lo- I love that you said it, Cecily. Love like, rarely do we get to see a woman emotions and yeah. anger and even come from a good place and writing that that's what you experienced I thought was such a gift to others it, it was always like the hardest in therapy because it was it was hard to even like access it I didn't really like understand and it actually has been like I've always thought I would probably need somebody to work on it with me so I would even know when it was happening yeah. um, like it should scare so I shouldn't punch a wall and it's like, that's not something I'm proud of and something I want to work on. And so, and it's, and it's like embarrassing and it's really not the part of you that I want to share, but it's like if someone, and again, a lot of it in the beginning of that, it's like those blank spaces, which I talked to Jack about now. I'm like, you know, any blank space, my brain is very quickly going to fill with, with like the ABC, worst, terrible things. Yes. You've been in an accident. You are, have a second family, you, (laughs) whatever. That's like, that's why you haven't called tonight. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. And I, but I mean, what a great thing to like be a hold of and let him know. And also like, I, okay, so this is another, (laughs) this is another connection we have. And I loved your cruise ship stories in the book. Um, But I, I mean, hey, um, so yeah. So I also performed maybe even on the same cruise ship. I can't remember, but I was, I I was on a cruise ship. Were you on the Jewel? No, I was on the Norwegian. The Norwegian jewel. No, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then cruise lines were called the Norwegian. Yeah. Okay, well, then I I can't remember what my boat was called then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe it was the jewel. I mean, in my head, it was called the Norwegian, but it's clearly not. Okay, well, yeah. I was on some boat, and um, and, and, um, I was was crying so hard that five people pounded on the door to open it. Oh, my God. And they were like, are you in the middle— of a violent death where you are both the perpetrator and the victim. Like, that's the only way we can, like, come away with, like, these sounds being okay. And I just remember being like, oh, well, I had, like, that Beyonce ballad on and was just really feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm really sad about some shit, but, man, this is embarrassing. This is hideously embarrassing. Wait till I cry about this later. <laughs> Wait till <Yeah>. I <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it can. I mean, when you're when you're a person who feels things, you feel things, and and it also goes hand in hand with like mental health stuff. So yeah, I loved it, and I loved your cruise ship story. <laughs> um, what, one a, of them, what a dream! Oh, Living the life God. on that cruise ship. Okay, so another thing I want to talk about in the book is that you wrote about an early relationship you had. And it was a really intense and um, at times violent relationship. And I wanna read a passage from what you wrote about this. You said, it's a hard story to tell. I loved him so much, he loved me, maybe a part of us always will, 
but it's a painful and shameful story too, and one I can't share easily because the only responsible moral way to think of it means I have to denounce it all. And I tried for years, but I can't today. That was really, really beautiful. So I wanted to ask you about how you have to denounce this story because you know morally things happen within it that are not good and you have to say that they're bad, but you don't want to call your relationship bad, even though this is something way in the past. Right. Well, I think it's just, it's like, it's a very tough thing. And especially, you know, thinking like I'm a feminist and I stand up for women and it's like, I, this is bad what happened. But I also know I loved him very much and I felt very loved by him. And I think all of that confusion and shame is also why we don't talk about it with each other. Well, we don't talk about abusive, emotionally or physically abusive relationship or relationships with any substance abuse problems. Because it's like, it's really, you, you know, you're supposed to be like, and I denounce, that's bad. And it's, and you don't know if you can talk about if people then are going to judge you and say, well, you're, I don't trust your opinions anymore or something. It's just very confusing. But it also is like, that's my first love. And that's how I understood, that's how I learned love, which is also why I think it's like, I have to look at that to understand why am I punching a wall right yeah. tonight and something yeah. else. And then you're in a hole where you feel like you can't talk about it at all. Yes. And then it's like, so now I've just lost years and years of my life that I just can't even learn from or reflect on or even have any, I'm not allowed to have any nice memories because it was bad. And it's like, well, I do have nice memories too. Yeah. Which I think is why it also hurts so much to be told, don't don't like to be dismissed so fast to not talk about it. it was very like, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe that I had reached out and tried to be very, like I thought it was very loving and it was just shot down so fast and dismissed so fast. Well, and, and it and wasn't mine. It, it, it's not, it, apparently it doesn't belong to me. Those are, well, you know, I don't want to spoil it for readers. So if you're listening, go buy the book, press pause on this podcast, read the whole thing, come back to the podcast. <laughs> but you were going to write about a relationship and you requested their permission and sent the story to them and they said no. So instead of those chapters in the book, there are 11 empty pages. And I audibly gasped at feeling the loss of your story. Right. And, but it's and, like, and but yet it's you're, still there. It was, there was this much there that I said that was like, I guess, because you're embarrassed, I can't. And I don't, I don't feel right now even writing all of it, but it was still right. like, it's, it was just so angry. I was very angry. I think like 11 blank pages is, was an angry thing for me. And it was my editor that was like, no, you have to keep them in. And yes. I've actually, I'll say I've gotten already even a little bit, I've gotten a lot of response from women, especially who have talked about their blank pages. And I actually, I did a, a book event last night and I do want to bring this up because I thought it was such a good idea um, with Chanel Miller, who wrote Know My Name. Yeah, She's brilliant. Oh, what a great book. And she was talking about those pages and like, oh, you know, when you read them, you want to fill them in. And I was like, that'd be, I, I would love that if everybody who has 
their story that they don't feel is theirs, like write it in there, write it in those pages, <laughs> write your own and know that it's there and it's yours. <laughs> you just like made me tear up. <laughs> oh, it's made me cry. I mean, I think it's like, what a great idea that we can oh. all support each other then and share that. Wow. Cecily, oh my God, that is, that's deeply moving. And yeah, I, I if you buy this book, put, put your story in those pages because that was. Those are your pages, yes. Oh, my God, Cecily. Um, wow, that's incredible. I, and I, so the thing you also just said, because you, when you're talking about something that involves someone else that's like deeply personal, relationship or not, just anything, what you said is, I can't talk about this because you're embarrassed, but you're, you're willing to talk about the story and be open about all the flaws. And that's what's something that's amazing about your book. Like, this is filled, this isn't a... I'm so great, and, like, this is a glossy, like, my life. Like, you give the details that, you know, where I'm reading it going, like, oh, my God, yes, this is what what, what it is. And But because someone else isn't there in their life to share, now you don't get your story, and how do you struggle with that? How do you be respectful of someone's wants, but also, like, why don't you get to talk? Right. So I don't—right. And especially when it's something that is such a huge part of your life, and it's like, I'm embarrassed, too. Yeah. This is me working through it. Like, lucky for you, it doesn't, I guess it's not a thing that's, maybe you're not punching through walls and a thing you have to work on because that's how you learned love. Yeah, but I mean, and also we know that's not the case. Like, whatever they're, you know, whatever they're doing is their own thing. And But yeah, I, um, that's also, that's the hardest part in sharing, being embarrassed. I mean, I'm really embarrassed of of my past abusive relationship, incredibly, because you feel like a shitty woman. Right. Like I, I'm not like a I'm not I'm not a girl boss. I'm a I'm a you know what I mean like victim. Yeah, yeah. Or that like you know I was doing such fucked up shit that like right because um, it's not black and white. And you're like I wasn't just like someone didn't walk into a room and just smack me across the face out of nowhere all the time. And I don't mean to say that I did something to provoke it, but it's like I was there for a long time and I was part of that. And then like I had that kind of violence and temper than an anger in me. Oh my God. You're like, <laughs> I swear to God, like two weeks ago on the podcast, I was like, yeah, I can't really get drunk anymore because I'll try and fight. Um, if there's any man who's rude to me, I'll try and fight him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you saying this, I'm like, right, 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 right. That's why I do that. <laughs> like, cause like, yeah, because it's been, uh, oh God, you're so right. Okay. Okay, as we come to the close, I have to ask you about something very important in your book, and that is 90 Day Fiance. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Um, would you say, I mean, I think it's the best show on earth. Would you agree? Why are you such a fan of it? Um, I will say, so I didn't watch it for seasons and seasons, for seasons and seasons. I didn't start watching it until, um, I would, I think, the best season they've ever had, which was uh, with Caesar. <laughs> and, um, and I think Angela was in that. I just was like, whoever found these people, this is like Peabody Award winning. Yeah. <laughs> these people are amazing. Um, and I have to say, I love Rashida's mom. Sabrina is my other 90 day fiance fan. And every time we will FaceTime, we always go 90 day fiance. There's just oh always my God. so much and- there. And I think like people don't realize it's not like something that TV set up. It is also, there is something about 
And it's something that I like recognize in myself, having like an Italian boyfriend being like, that's very distant and a thing I can. And it was like, there's something about like that relationship appealing to you. And what kind of person does that make you? That's like, it's like, I also love, um, love after lockup where there's something about like women who want to date men in jail where it's like, you can't cheat on you in there. And these very loving, it has your attention. and you have power because you yep. you're on the outside. You can send them money, and that you want to be in a relationship where you can hold the power. It's so appealing to you that you're now with someone who's in jail. Uh, Yasser's who's mom like, loves the, that show. The only one I talk to, and like you're everything, and your children are my children now. And it's sort of like I yes. understand where that's coming from, but it is yep. such a yeah, it's such a bummer <laughs> then when they get out. <laughs> I will say, and I, I love 90 Day Fiance, and I don't want to call it a show that is, uh, it's not culturally um, positive in any way, but as a reality trash TV show right. for Americans to watch, it does introduce you to a lot of power dynamics between countries in a way where, like, you could teach a pretty hefty um, cultural geography class based on one season of 90 Day Fiance. Absolutely. (laughs) And you should win a Peabody for the casting. And listen, if we have not hooked you on 90 Day from this, I don't know what will. Um, Okay, Cecily, I'm going to read one final quote and then we will will say goodbye. I'm going to read the final page. It does seem likely, though, everything will have changed permanently. Some people seem to think that implies a negative change. I think I used to be a person like that. Maybe part of me still is. But then there's a part of me that wants to be more open now to allowing love to grow, even in times of grief and fear. I'm trying to get comfortable with living with the unknown day to day, just as my hero did for almost two years. Here's a thing I know for sure. I had a cousin named Owen who had red hair as a little boy, and he was a serious kid, and he loved birds. He taught me about love during his life, and he's teaching me about love after. I just, <laughs> I can't even hear it, and I cried. That was the, one of the parts when I did the audiobook. It was like, I just had to keep stopping and starting again. Yeah. I I just, I mean, I just want to thank you for grieving so openly, which I know is a weird thing to say, but like we don't get to talk about grief and process grief and live with grief. And we can't do it unless there's art and books like yours to take us through it. And you did that. And it was really, really moving. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. Thanks for coming on. And I will just say on that, no, it's like we are living with grief in some way. And it's like you can talk about it or not, but it doesn't take it away. It doesn't make you somehow magically escape it. You won't get to escape it. Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. You're such a... Like, uh, I almost said, like, poet, but I I mean it in a very, like, that was so stunning. Um, And this book really was stunning. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. And I'll see you in real life one day soon, probably at some drag show. I hope. (laughs) Please. That's all for this week's episode. I just loved talking to Cecily, and we are going to talk to more authors in the coming weeks of their own memoirs. In the meantime, you can go to at Chelsea Devantes. That's my Instagram where I read the books. You can read along with me, and I also post visual stories every time we post an episode, and those are always saved in my highlights. If you are enjoying the podcast, please, please, please leave us a nice review or pass the podcast along to a friend or write a little post about it. It helps us so much. And as always, thank 
you to our producers here at Stitcher. So incredible. Executive producer, Daisy Rosario. Associate producer, Corinne Wallace. Producer, Brandon Nix. And our episode engineer, Marcus Hom. We hope you guys enjoyed this bonus episode and I will see you next week. Bye.